You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. Job chapter 19 is a a long chapter, and it is filled um, with weighty and good things for us to learn. Um, But we are going to uh, have to kind of narrow in. And so what we're going to do is we're going to pick up in... Uh, verse 13, and there's a reason why we're going to do that. Uh, essentially, the first 12 verses of Job chapter 19 uh, are, uh, are what could be considered a summary of chapters 16 uh, and 17. 16, which was addressed last week for us. And so um, I'll just kind of summarize uh, verses 1 through 12. Essentially, again, Job is recounting for us, reminding us of his complaint, what his situation is, right? And, and first uh, among those is that his friends are miserable comforters, right? We talked about the irony of that statement last week, but that his friends are miserable comforters. Their self-righteousness is harming instead of healing, which is what Job actually needs, And then second, what we'll also see is Job's complaint against God, which is that not only has God sort of uh, removed his hand from them, not only is God, or or, or not, is God just aloof, but that God is actually his adversary, right? We see that in, uh, I believe it's verse 11, uh, where Job says that. And so what was familiar to Job, this is how we can essentially... uh, Bring it down to one sentence. What was familiar for Job was friendship with Bildad, with Eliphaz, and Zophar, and fellowship with God. That's what was familiar. And at this point in Job's life, that fellowship and that friendship is no longer felt. What was familiar is now foreign to Job. And so we pick up in verse 13, and it says this. He has put my brothers far from me, and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I have become a foreigner in their eyes. And there's a lot of of words in there, again, that that are helpful in terms of describing for us just the disorientation uh, that Job is experiencing in this moment, right? He uses words of distance, like far. He uses words that connote death, like the word estranged, which in the Hebrew essentially means that. It's like, it's like I'm dead to them, right? And who's he talking about? He's talking about his brothers, his relatives, his closest friends. But the word that I really want to sort of pick up on and and focus on is that word in the last verse that we read, the the word foreigner. Because I think that it's a word that many of us, maybe not all of us, but many of us uh, can probably empathize with. And so this is what Job is saying, right? Job is saying, I am, the, the treatment that I am receiving from my friends and my closest allies is as though I was a foreigner. And my treatment from God is as though I was not only a foreigner, but a foreigner with whom God had a hostile relationship, right? God is my adversary. Now, if you've ever 
traveled abroad for any length of time, and if you've ever traveled abroad and sort of spent some time on your own in a foreign country where you didn't know the language, maybe didn't have a good grasp of the culture, maybe didn't know, you know, any of those things, you, you may have, I, I don't, maybe it's just me, like I, I grew up um, son to missionary parents, and so we travel, this, this word foreigner kind of dis- defines my, my reality for much of my life in that no matter where we went, we were the foreigners. Um, and so like I said, if you find yourself traveling, you find yourself alone in, in one of those spaces, um, it is one of the strangest realities that you can be surrounded by a, a multitude of people and yet feel utterly alone. Because even if you wanted to communicate, you can't, right? And not only is it obvious to you that you're a foreigner, not only do you feel the weight of that, not only do you feel the discomfort of that, but you know that everybody else is watching you feel that. It's painfully obvious. You feel alien in that moment. And what that ultimately leads to, or what it led me to, was to kind of, there's, there's a retreat there, right? There's like a, oh God, like, you know, that alienation often leads to a kind of isolation, a kind of feeling of relational distance from everyone that's around you. And the reason I bring that up is because I believe that that experience, although very small and not exactly the same, does shed some light for us on, again, the disorientation that Job is experiencing here and the suffering that Job is experiencing because that reality that maybe we've experienced in a foreign country where it's appropriate, Job is now experiencing that among his closest relationships. He feels like he does not belong. There's an inability to communicate. There's a a reciprocity that's not happening here. Job's not just a foreigner in another country, he's a a foreigner in his own country. Where he used to belong, he is now alien. And it's because of Job's alienation that he now experiences this intense isolation, which is essentially what he's describing, right? Those are the the words that we're getting, they're far from me. The reality is they're not, in terms of actual distance, right? But relationally, there's a distance, there's a chasm that's opened up between these people who were so near and so dear to him, and of course, between him and his God, whom he so dutifully worshipped. I mean, it's the whole gambit, right? The closest relationship, verse 17, my breath is strange to my wife, and even the most informal relationship, even young children despise me. The most basic social respects to the closest social relationship one could have. The whole gamut he feels isolated from. Utterly alone, abandoned on all fronts. This is where Job is at. This is where Job is at in chapter 19. Now you and I, we have the benefit of knowing that God is not his adversary, and nor really have his friends left him. They're, they're still there. They're just creating relational distance by their stupidity. What I love about the book of Job, though, is this. We will know later on in the book that God actually honors Job's posture. 
that although Job, maybe if we don't empathize with him, or maybe if we just, just can't really put ourselves in his shoes, we look at him and we go, look, it's really not that bad, right? I mean, he thinks God is against him, but God's really for him, right? That's not how God looks at Job, right? And that God honors his posture, God, God will go on to say that Job has acted righteously, that, that his behavior is appropriate in this moment. Now, why do I like that? This means that God empathizes with Job's experience and that God can take our questions and our complaints. You, Job is making an accusation. And he's not just making an accusation of his friends. He's making an accusation of God. Let's not sanitize this, right? Let's not clean this up, right? This is Job, like, getting in his friends' faces and in God's face. Many of us, if we were to speak this way to God, would probably feel disrespectful. And yet what this is telling us is that if we're suffering, we can let it be known in no uncertain terms. I mean, Job goes to great lengths to describe in great detail, what it is that he is suffering. This is messy, real grief, and God sees it, God bears it, and even though Job doesn't know it right now, he's with him in it. See, God's compassion and empathy is not contingent upon the facts of the situation here. The fact is that God is with Job. But God doesn't sit there and go, Job, if only you understood. If only you had all the facts. It's not contingent upon that. Suffering is suffering is suffering, period, end of story. And so you know what that means for us? It also means that our compassion and our empathy should also not be contingent upon those things. See, in Romans 12, the Apostle Paul calls us to weep with those who weep, and he adds no qualification to that. He doesn't say weep with those who weep if they have a good reason for weeping. He says weep with those who weep. Suffer with those who suffer. There's no qualifying statement to that calling, and God is a beautiful example. So if that's where Job is right now, at the bottom of that pit. What is it that Job wants? Verse 21 says this, Have mercy on me. This is Job crying out to his friends. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? What does Job want? Essentially, he wants the opposite of what he's experiencing, right? The alienation, right? The this, this sense of being a foreigner and the isolation that he experiences because of it, he wants that to go away. He says, have mercy on me. Remember that you are my friends. In place of alienation, Job wants kinship. And kinship is, it goes a step further than, than just relationship. Kinship, meaning like, like blood relative. He wants that, that knowing and being known. He wants that unconditional acceptance that is, I am a member of your family. 
In place of his isolation, Job wants to be redeemed, restored, recovered, brought back into the fold, brought back into a a loving context. He wants to belong amongst, amongst his own. And the problem is this. For 19 chapters thus far, he has been utterly unable to procure those things. Kinship and redemption escape him. His dialogue with his friends is becoming increasingly frustrating and seemingly futile at this point. In fact, verse 2, he says they are only injuring him more, right? How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? They're only further injuring the relationship with their miserable comforting. His dialogue with God is also becoming increasingly frustrating and seemingly futile in that God has not responded to him at this point. What does he say in verse 7? Behold, I cry out violence, but I am not answered. I cry out for help, and there is no justice. And this only serves to further reassure Job that he is, in fact, God's adversary, his enemy. So Job longs for his alienation to be replaced with kinship and for his isolation to be replaced with redemption. That's what he wants. He wants back into the country of his birth. And I think this is what makes Job so, uh, so easy to empathize with, so easy to understand, so easy to feel loved and cared for when we read this book. Because what Job wants is really not very unfamiliar to us, is it? We all want what Job wants. We all want kinship, blood ties. We want to utterly belong to one another. And when it is lost, we want to be redeemed to it. That's what we want. To be fully known, fully accepted. And so what's at, what's at stake here is really kind of unique, right? In, that, in all of Job's complaint, like remember what's happened to Job, right? There's, there's real physical pain, right? There's real emotional pain in that he has lost a significant amount of wealth, all of his belongings, a great measure of his family members, his children have perished, right? And yet what is it that Job is complaining about here? He's not, he's not necessarily complaining about those things that are outside of him, is he? He's complaining about his, his relational reality, right? That like all of these things I could walk in if I just had this context of relationship, if I just had this bedrock of kinship with both those whom I love and treasure and my God whom I I purpose to dutifully serve. And so it's not necessarily the nature of what has happened to Job that causes grief, but it's the distance that the acts of his friends that have created this relational reality that is so painful for Job, right? Right? How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? It's not just that his friends have wronged him. 
It's that those wrongs have created a relational chasm that he can't seem to find a way to bridge. And so here's the thing. When we are wronged, sometimes it's not only the wrongful nature of the act that causes us to grieve, but it's the distance that the act creates relationally. That sense of alienation, that sense of isolation, that sense of, I don't belong here and I'm not wanted. You see, Job's friends wronged him, and while the wrongs were wrong, it's the relational distance that Job grieves over. He pleads with them to stop injuring him and to have mercy on him. This is what Job ultimately wants to know. When he cries out to his friends, he wants to know that someone hears him, that someone is with him, and that they're not leaving him because they are his kin. And so I'm going to just take a moment, an aside here, because I think it's applicable and because I've been gone um, in the middle of kind of all the madness that's happened over the last four weeks in our country. Um, And I just want to say something um, to my black brothers and sisters in the room this morning. Um, I know that your whole lives have an aroma of this, particularly in this country, a feeling of alienation and isolation. I don't belong here and I'm not wanted here. And I know that that aroma right now is especially pungent. And so let me say this to you. First, and this is just personal, I'm sorry for where I have failed to suffer well with you. And then the second one, and more broadly, is this. Myself, and by God's grace, this church, Sojourn, hears you, is with you, and will not leave you because you are our kin in Christ. And we're going to see how that happens in just a moment. We are listening. Your suffering is heard, maybe not fully understood, but it's heard and we want to walk with you. Okay, let's jump back in. So we we know where Job is, right? We know what Job wants, and so the question is, how's how's Job going to get it? Again, it seems at this point, after 19 chapters, that, that he's utterly at his wit's end as to how that would take place. Where does Job have any hope for this redemption, for this kinship that he so desires? Well, let's read verse 23. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. If Job could only be reading now, right? Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. They are, Job, they are. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. Job hopes in a third party. A third party, a party described as redeemer. And, and I want to dive into that word a little bit um, because it has a very specific meaning culturally at the time that Job is saying this. And, and really it's kind, of a, it's kind of a combination of two words, kinsman, redeemer, that are kind of sandwiched together in this meaning. But he... He hopes in this kinsman redeemer to come 
and to vindicate him. And so I guess the, the, the good question to ask is, what is a kinsman redeemer? What is their function? And it's essentially threefold, all right? Three roles of a kinsman redeemer culturally in Job's time. The first one is this. The first duty of the kinsman redeemer was, was to, let's suppose, right? Let's suppose that a property which had belonged to a family had been lost, had passed away through poverty. It was the business of the kinsman redeemer to go and to pay the price to bring that heritage back into the family, right? That was duty number one, to redeem by price something that had been lost. It was also, second, considered to be their duty not merely to redeem by price, but where that failed, to redeem by power. And so if there was, uh, if the kinsman was Redeemer was unable to, to make restitution or to make a deal, sort of uh, negotiate a fair price. It was his duty to redeem it by power. We see this happen um, when Lot is taken captive by the four kings and Abraham and all of his hosts go and they march upon them and they redeem Lot by power. They bring him back to his country. And then the third role is this. Third duty was to avenge the death of of his family member. So if a person, a family member had been slain, he was the avenger of their blood. He was the one responsible to take up the sword and make restitution for that. This is the person that Job here says will deliver him the vindication that he desires, the restoration, the redemption that he so longs for is in this third party this third party that will make his case before God, redeem either by price or by power, and avenge his blood. This third party is Job's only hope. But what you'll notice is that Job's hope is not hope in the, in the weak sense of, I hope he'll ask me out. It's hope in the true sense. It's hope that is not based upon a feeling, but but focused and centered in and on a person, which is why Job says this, for I know, right? Not I guess, not I think, not if I had to bet, I know my Redeemer lives. And it's not just I know a Redeemer lives, it's I know my Redeemer lives. And so this is a weird thing for Job to say because uh, he just got done recounting the fact that all of his kinsmen had abandoned him, that, he didn't, that he's utterly alone, alienated, isolated, removed from all of the people that could be considered a kinsman redeemer on his behalf. And so it would seem to be a hopeless situation if this redeemer is to be one of his kin. And yet Job says, I know my Redeemer lives. You see, Job hoped in a thing that was yet to be revealed to him. And we, by God's grace and by the privileged juncture of history that we find ourselves in, hope in a thing that has been revealed in Christ. And yet our hopes are the same. In that we, like Job, can... Cry this same cry and it be true. I know that my Redeemer lives. Because Job is not using a future tense and we don't have to use a past tense. 
It's not, I know my Redeemer lived. I know my Redeemer lives. You see, our kinsman Redeemer, Job's kinsman Redeemer, is Jesus. How so? How so? Right? Well, He redeems us by a price. By paying the penalty that was due to restore to us our heritage, our inheritance. You understand that? That in creation, before everything was broken, our inheritance was kinship with one another and with God. And because of Jesus, Jesus pays the penalty of our sins so that we get our inheritance back. This is 1 Peter. This is what it's saying to us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to what? A living what? Hope. Through what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To what? An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's own power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. He redeems us by power. By defeating death, conquering its sting once and forever through his resurrection. Where death would cling, Christ has released its grasp. And he avenges our blood. And that we live in this really weird kind of stage of history where, where death has been conquered, but it's not, it's not yet been destroyed. And yet the Bible promises us that one day, that day will come. That, that the blood that death has taken from us and from our kinsmen will be avenged. Charles Spurgeon, famous preacher, put it this way. Christ will avenge himself on death for all the injury which death has done to his kinsmen. And I just want to pick out one little word there at the end. His kinsmen. That Jesus isn't just some aloof savior that kind of did something out of duty or obligation, but that Jesus now, because of what he's done and because of the relationship that he's restored us to with God and with one another, we're now Jesus' kin in the new flesh, in the new blood. That he is our kinsman and he is our redeemer. And so you know what that means for us? That means that we don't have just a bunch of individually redeemed people, but that we have a redeemed kinfolk. That we are kin of one another. And so here's what that means for us, right? Suffering is unavoidable. I have no secrets as to how you can escape that other than do your best to, you know, <laughs> yeah, I, I got nothing. So suffering is going to come upon us, and it's going to come upon us in many ways and for many reasons. So sometimes it may be deserved. Sometimes it will utterly not be deserved, and you will, like Job, rack your brain to figure out what it is that has caused this calamity to come upon you. But here's what makes our experience unique from Job's. 
in Christ and in all of the commands, the obligations of the people of God to one another in the New Testament, we can know this. When we walk through those moments, those lifetimes for some of us, let's just be honest, we will never walk through them without kinship and redemption. That's what the church is. That's what makes belonging to a local body of believers so important, whether that's here or somewhere else. And particularly at this church, that's what makes belonging to a neighborhood parish so important. It's because in that place, among our kinfolk, it's in that place that we can fight against the inward and the outward alienation and isolation that so frequently accompanies suffering. And we can fight against it with the tangible, physical reminder that we are not only kinsmen of God, kinsmen of God in Christ Jesus, but that we are kinsmen of one another and that we will together experience an eternity in glory. And that is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading kept in heaven for you, not by your power, but by God's own power. And so, beloved, this morning, my kin, we can rejoice together in this coming reality. Verse 26. Ah, let's take 25 again. It's good too. For I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, my heart faints within me. Because we are kin with God through the work of Jesus, we will see him. It won't be down to someone's testimony. It won't be some fake book about 90 minutes in heaven. You will see God. And it tells us in Revelation 5 that in that moment that he will wipe away every tear from your eye. And there will be no sickness anymore. And there will be no death anymore. And there will be no enmity between us anymore. Because all of those things will not only have been redeemed by price, redeemed by power, but they will have been avenged by the righteous, peaceful, gracious, wonderful counselor, mighty God, Prince of Peace, King of Kings, Jesus Christ, who by his alienation made us kinsmen and who by his isolation brought us near in redemption. You will see him no matter what your current circumstances suggest. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you again just for this morning that we get to gather together and that we get to worship a God that is truly glorious. And Lord, I look forward to the day when you give us the appropriate words, the appropriate language to give you praise because everything that I've said this morning and everything that we have sung and will sing feels so palefully inadequate to this great grace and this great mercy that you have leveraged upon your kin. So Lord, I, I pray this morning for those of us in the room who 
are feeling alienated and isolated. And some of that may be experiential and some of that might be real. We might actually not know you. We might actually not experience kinship with you. And for those whom that is a reality for, God, I pray that your spirit would just break down the door. Breathe new life into dead bones. Redeem them by price. Redeem them by power. Avenge their blood in the heavenlies. And Lord, for those of us in the room who feel like our brothers and sisters have not walked with us, or we feel like our situation currently has created such relational distance and space and difficulty that we feel alienated and isolated because of that, Lord, would you give voice to their suffering? And would they find courage and strength to not only voice it before you, but to voice it before the family of believers? Because, Lord, your presence is here, and in your presence is the joy that Job longs for and the, Job, the, the joy that we find now realized. So, Lord, we thank you this morning that we get to celebrate um, in, in physical means the way that you have redeemed us by price as we come to your communion table and acknowledge that you are our kinsman redeemer. And so, Lord, allow us to take the cup and allow us to take the bread and with great joy say we are kin, both of you and of one another. We thank you, Lord. Your grace is extravagant and utterly undeserved. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.